The Australian state of Victoria has spent much of the last month on high alert as bushfires continue to threaten property and lives. High temperatures, low humidity, and strong winds have recently brought conditions similar to those three weeks ago on Black Saturday. Then bushfires tore through native bush and into townships, causing the death of more than 200 people. Bushfires, of course, are an annual reality in southeastern Australia, but why were these fires so deadly? And what should be done to stop a reoccurrence? Radio New Zealand's Ian Telfer investigates with additional material from the ABC. And the world is fire, and the sky wears a smoky veil, and the bloodshot sun stares, can no longer comprehend the language. Of the land, black trees, grey rivers, ash mountains. Australians have quickly dubbed February the seventh Black Saturday. At the day of mourning memorial service, the Prime Minister Kevin Rudd promised it will be etched forever in the nation's memory. Let us resolve today that from this time forth, on every seventh of February. This nation's flags will fly at half mast. This nation will pause for a moment's silence to honour those lost and to reaffirm afresh this great rebuilding for the future, as we rise together in hope from the ashes of despair. In places where fires ripped through, the scenes are simply apocalyptic. Some of Victoria's best-loved country getaways have been gutted beyond recognition. The wooden heritage town of Marysville lost most of its buildings and up to 100 of its 500 inhabitants. The biggest fire began 90 kilometres north of Melbourne in the settlement of Kilmore East, travelled up into the ranges and killed 39 around the town of Kinglake. The town of Kinglake. It's just a charred shadow of its former self. Some of the buildings in the main street were saved, but all around, the smell of ashes in the air. And as I walk just a few hundred metres from those shops, almost every house has been destroyed, raised to the ground by the fierce flames. I'm standing in front of what used to be three houses. There's now only the brick outline of a chimney, and the shell of a few walls. The roofing iron lies twisted and crumpled on the ground, and everything is black. In total, more than 400,000 hectares, or a 4,000 square kilometer area the size of Melbourne, was burned out that day and in the weeks that have followed. Businesses have suffered, vineyards lost, bed and breakfasts, and other tourism ventures destroyed. The national parks themselves have been badly battered. Ian Roche is the Parks Victoria Ranger for the Yarra Ranges National Park. Well, the Kinglake National Park and the Yarra Ranges National Park have been、uh, severely impacted, and as you can imagine, public facilities, visitor facilities, a lot of the, the facilities in those places have been just destroyed. But also, of course,、uh, all the natural values have been impacted on. Australian vegetation is well adapted to wildfire. But you know we're seeing a fire event, the likes of which we've never seen before. Parks rangers accept this situation because bushfire is a permanent feature of the Victorian high country landscape. 
and sometimes the fires run riot. Australia's Governor-General Quentin Bryce acknowledged this in her address on the day of mourning last Sunday. In the last two weeks, we have experienced and witnessed in Victoria devastating ruin, bereavement and pain. The helpers, the firefighters, emergency support workers, aid workers, neighbours and strangers will come to accept that there were some forces too swift and too potent to ever humanly overcome. This was not the first bushfire tragedy. There was Black Friday in January 1939, which burned out almost a tenth of the state and killed 71 people. 75 lives were lost in 1983 on a day now widely known as Ash Wednesday. But the death toll this time is three times as bad. The Victorian government was quick to announce a royal commission to investigate what went wrong and how a repeat can be avoided. Ahead of Black Saturday, authorities accurately warned the temperature would rise to between 45 and 47 degrees centigrade, the hottest day in the state since records began. Against a backdrop of a 10-year drought, a heat wave two weeks before had pushed the temperatures on three days to over 40 degrees. This almost eliminated any moisture from the air, driving the relative humidity down to just 6%. And then there were the winds. Phil Koperberg was head of the Rural Fire Service in New South Wales for 21 years and is now a backbench MP in that state. He says the conditions were simply disastrous. The weekend saw quantum leaps in temperature, with temperatures in the, in the vicinity of 46.5 degrees, being recorded throughout much of Victoria and southeastern Australia. We saw winds which blew at in excess of 100 kilometres per hour in many parts and um, humidities which were very, very low. Now those factors combined provided the perfect storm scenario. This was exacerbated by a very strong southerly change which constituted a front moving from the south to the north and under normal circumstances such fronts would be accompanied by perhaps some, some rainfall. Uh, this was not. It was a very dry, very strong change which caused the fires uh, to become very confused and became uncontrollable in a, in a very short space of time. So what we had was a meteorological phenomena which made firefighting literally impossible. It precluded the usual warnings being issued uh, which would enable people to, in a timely fashion, make a decision as to whether they would stay and defend their houses or leave. And that's the principal reason for this catastrophe. The day before, the Premier of Victoria, John Brumby, was prescient in his warnings. Probably, the, by a long way, the, the worst uh, day ever in the history of the state in terms of the temperatures and the winds. Martin Booth is a retired gas engineer from the town of Heathcote Junction, where five people died. He describes the day. We'd certainly been warned. I mean, the fire services and the, the people at universities and so on who study these phenomena had warned us that Saturday was going to be a horror, partly because there was a lot of fuel around. And, of course, the 46 degrees, I mean, that day would have been memorable if there hadn't been a fire from just the sheer ferocity of the heat. I've lived in Kuwait in the Middle East for some time and I've never felt heat like last Saturday. It was just dreadful and it's not surprising how it exploded basically because I don't think building materials 
can take that sort of ambient temperature and then a fire comes through on top of it. It was just a day, I think, when the, the fates conspired that everything that you could have that was bad in the way of wind and heat and fuel came together, sadly. But the same day did not cause deaths in the wheat fields of the Wimmera or the suburbs of Melbourne where fires also burned. There had to be something to burn, and the explosive fuel that day was the drought-ravaged native bush. A professor of environmental history at the Australian National University, Tom Griffiths, told the ABC the circumstances and landscape both played a part. It's a really unique chemistry of air and fuel and it happens because of those northerlies that rip down from central Australia when a high pressure system stalls in the Tasman. Uh, It's unique because of the the, uh, dynamism of the deadly southerly change that can come in uh, in the middle of of a fire such as has just happened. Uh, The topography, the steep slopes of the ranges, the valleys that channel the winds of the fire flume, the extreme heat that can build up, the low humidity, and also the distinctive ash-type eucalypts that grow north and east of Melbourne. I mean, this is the the largest area of uh, ash-type eucalypts in the country, and they themselves foster a fire environment. Scott Gentle from the Victorian Forest Harvest and Cartage Council says it's some of the most fire-prone country in the world. It's all very dry messmate country. It's traditionally a, the drier part of this country. It's not like the wet ash forests, so it, it tends to burn a lot hotter and quicker through there. And there's quite significant fuel loads in there. A lot of this area, actually, the particular area, Chum Creek, hasn't burned for well over nearly 50 years now. Can you describe it a bit more for um, New Zealand people? Is that sort of gum trees or what is it? It's eucalypt trees, but a different sort. These particular eucalypt trees, the messmate trees, are actually designed to burn. They have the bark on them that is very thick and fibrous. It's the perfect kindling. If you grab a piece of this bark, crunch it up, put a match to it, it'll burn every time, even when it's wet. So they're actually designed for the purposes of regeneration. They're actually designed to burn. So when you get a fire like this, of this size, with those fuel loads in there, as well as really thick bark on the trees, they tend to burn very well, and it just keeps generating its own, own life sort of thing. Although the general warning had been made, the fire moved much faster than residents expected or fire authorities could deal with. It was revealed soon after that plans to build an early warning telecommunications system that could make hundreds of thousands of phone calls simultaneously were shelved in 2005 as too expensive. The Victorian and federal governments now say it will be in place by next summer. But even the Premier, John Brumby, doubts it would have saved many lives in this situation. This fire that travelled from Kilmore across to Marysville travelled at more than 100 kilometres an hour. So even if you'd had the best warning systems in the world, I honestly don't know whether they would have helped given the speed of the fire. Questions are being asked about why the most threatened areas were not simply evacuated, as is done in Southern California but the Premier has insisted that it would not have been possible to evacuate the more than half a million people who were potentially at risk. Australia's national fire policy urges residents to choose whether to leave ahead of the fire front or to stay and fight the fire on their property. Professor Griffiths says the policy must now be reviewed. The stay at home and defend policy can work and has worked very well in many areas. It saved lives in areas. So I'm simply saying in some places... It doesn't work. In some conditions, it doesn't work. And that's the case in the forests of ash and the Victorian mountain communities 
on 40-something degree days after a long drought and a prolonged heat wave. Professor Griffiths says this time the policy contributed to many deaths by suggesting that residents would have time to prepare or get away ahead of the fire front arriving. There is no early in this fire region. Uh, As we're hearing from survivors, uh, this is an explosive environment. This is a, a surging torrent of air and fuel and gas and heat Uh, If you are in its path, it will consume you. Um, I don't believe that uh, it was realistic to uh, encourage people to think that they might be able to defend an ordinary home in such conditions. Dozens of others died in their vehicles as they tried to flee the roaring flames and were caught on the road. Even as firefighters headed out for their fourth day on the front line, police launched their largest fire investigation under the name Operation Phoenix. More than 100 officers will try to identify the specific cause of every fire. At least four fires are believed to have been deliberately lit. So far one man, a 39-year-old, has been charged with lighting the fires in Churchill in the state's east that killed 11 people. It's widely expected more arsonists will be found. Arson expert Dr Ian Lambie, a senior lecturer in psychology at the University of Auckland, says contrary to popular belief, arson is not a mental illness. No, it's a behaviour. It certainly isn't a disease. It's something that people have control over and it's another type of antisocial behaviour. So somebody may go and and steal something, commit some sort of violent act, another person will go and light fires. Dr Lambie says most fires are lit by young people, but in this case it appears the culprits are adults. He says there are a very small number of people who begin deliberately lighting fires as a child and keep doing it into adulthood. But he says there is a much larger group of adults of low intelligence who cannot manage their emotions and who copy the actions of others. They set their fire in order to actually be someone who they never really were and who they want to be. They want to be somebody and they feel inadequate, potentially hopeless, and what they'll do is they'll set a fire And of course it creates a lot of media attention and it's a way that they get quite perversely a a bit of a kick and a bit of a thrill by actually seeing the attention that the media have on that actual crime and that event. And if you look at the fires in uh, Australia, while obviously it seems like some of those were obviously from lightning strikes and from power lines that were down and and maybe one or two people may have set some fires, it'll also be potentially copycat as well. These are people that are wanting to come in on the crime and think, gosh, it's getting this much attention, I also want to be there and I've never really been somebody. It's sort of a sense of power. Australia's Prime Minister Kevin Rudd has described the lit fires as mass murder. Dr Lambie says those responsible must be dealt with harshly. I think there certainly needs to be a clear, absolute consequence from um, legal authority. I think that, you know, if they they catch the people that set the fires in Australia and they are proven guilty, absolutely, I think they need long sentences. But also they need rehabilitation. You know, potentially they're going to get out. So, you you know, I think it's a a two-pronged approach. Where some fires were started by arson, others may have been through negligence. Mark Woods, a partner of a Gippsland law firm, Tyler Tipping and Woods, told the ABC legal action will be in the minds of many survivors. What uh, I and uh, the members on the ground here have seen is um, people as part of the grieving process wanting someone to blame. Now, I'm not a psychologist, I'm a lawyer, but we see that very frequently after motor vehicle accidents and other sorts of disasters. As part of the, the sort of the quest for closure, people want to be able to say, 
that's the person or the entity responsible and we want them to pay. Litigation has already begun in the case of the King Lake fire which reportedly started in a paddock in Kilmore East by poorly maintained power lines sparking as they dragged on the ground. The class action by a Melbourne law firm was lodged against the Singapore-based power network company SP Osnet on behalf of survivors, farmers, tourist operators and other small businesses. The lawsuit could be for damages of up to $500 million. But Mark Woods says unless the Royal Commission finds fault, it may struggle to succeed. One has to be very careful about trying to find one single source of responsibility for fires. And that's something that those who are conducting litigation need to look at very carefully. Fires, by their very nature, move, they ebb and flow for a variety of reasons which may or may not be connected with the alleged original source. Very important that um, we as a profession don't say to clients uh, or potential clients, look, if you were damaged by that particular fire, well, it follows that X or Y must be responsible. Even if negligence is proven, the Victorian government may have to pick up much of the bill after it limited the maximum legal liability to the company to $100 million. But it's not just legal bills the government faces. Many rural people say state and federal policies have limited their ability to reduce the risks of living amongst the bush. The president of the Victorian Federated Farmers, Simon Ramsey, says many policies simply increase the dangers. We have um, government policy here which reduces the uh, ability to remove native vegetation. We don't have significant buffers around public lands, uh, national parks to reduce fire risk. We have very poor access in and out of these peri-urban community and that is those tree-style bush blocks that are in significant risk in relation to fire. The building codes and the planning codes don't allow for any significant uh, risk mitigation in those uh, settlements and uh, I would have thought houses in in high fire risk areas should at least have some bunker or cellar or some capacity for uh, the inhabitants to be able to uh, get underground in case of fire. Mr Ramsey says rule changes must be made soon. I think it's going to be critical. I mean the human loss is huge Uh, And this is not the first time we've seen significant fires in peri-urban areas where really the residents have no idea about fire mitigation. They don't understand the risk. There's no capacity to remove vegetation around their houses. And and even within the houses themselves, they're all fire traps, they're death traps. One of the most controversial issues is the burning off of forest land in advance of the bushfire season to reduce the intensity of any fires that do eventuate. The authorities call this fuel reduction burning, and in the past it has been an Australian tradition. But Stephen J. Pine, a leading authority on the history and management of fire from Arizona State University, told the ABC he believes an expanding population has brought a change of attitude. More and more of Australians are in cities. They are acquiring a different set of values, not based on the history of rural Australia, and they want something different out of Australia uh, and their relationship to the bush and those values begin seeing these these new practices of large-scale burning as simply another example of appallingly bad behavior towards the bush that it's of a piece with wood chipping and uh, exterminating species and all these other kinds of nasty things that have gone on and have really argued to shut it down.
Professor Pine says many people now seem to want to live amongst pristine nature. Black Saturday may force a change. Michael McKinnell is a logging contractor from the town of Hillsville who has worked the harvestable native forests for decades. He strongly supports fuel reduction. It is the most necessary tool, especially around urban areas. I mean, the urban sprawl is crawling further and further out in, into relatively heavily forested areas. And I mean, I realise the reason people move out there, but I, I don't think the knowledge or, or the understanding of what can happen and... Uh, and we certainly hope we never see a Saturday again. But there are, there are certain incidents. That was such a widespread incident. But certainly every year there are forest fires that are just every bit as hot as that, but they're just not near urban centres. The National Park Ranger for the area, Ian Roach, says fuel reduction is hard to accept, but a necessary action. However, he says the recent years of drought have made it more difficult. It's actually harder than, than usual because we've, we have to... Uh, a lot of our fuel reduction burning has to be done much more slowly because the uh, fire is so willing and ready to uh, take off. It's very difficult to keep it inside containment lines. The Victorian government's target for fuel reduction is to burn off 10% of the state's forests every year. But figures reported in the last few weeks suggest the authorities have of late managed to achieve only one-third of this. Some commentators pin the blame on the growing strength of environmental lobby groups. Neither the Wilderness Society nor the Green Party in Victoria would talk to Insight, but in a statement the Green Party says some of the loudest attacks on conservation policies are politically motivated and not from the fire-damaged regions. The party says it supports ecologically appropriate use of fire to reduce fuel loads and manage habitats. The forester Michael McKinnell says critics of fuel reduction burning may now change their minds. At certain times where you do want to backburn, there may be certain flora issues. Some of the locals don't particularly like to be inconvenienced by the smoke, but, but gee whiz, I wonder if they feel the same way now. The ferocity of the fires is also being attributed to global warming. It simply can't be known if the horror of Black Saturday was amplified by human-induced greenhouse effect or simply a one-off event, but it's being talked about as a horrifying window on the future. Australia's United Firefighters Union has written an open letter to the Prime Minister calling for swift action to reduce carbon dioxide emissions believed to be driving up global temperatures. Former Fire Chief Phil Koperberg says the question has to be investigated. The debate as to whether or not this was a climate change generated event will continue. What we do know is that we're seeing temperature records being broken, we're seeing flood records being broken and we're seeing the manifestation, at least peripherally, uh, of climate change. Now whether this particular event was a simple uh, freak of nature as it were or whether it is a consequence of climate change remains to be debated. But what we do know is that we will have to redefine previous understanding of how fire behaves in a range of scenarios because this has set a new benchmark um, and the Royal Commission will obviously delve into all of these matters. We want to obviously try and avoid a situation where we consider what happened at the weekend as the norm. Uh, I don't believe it will be. Uh, there will be such future events, but the frequency of them is something which is going to be the subject, I suspect, of lots and lots of scientific research. As the questions continue, the 7,500 people made homeless by the crisis have begun to think about rebuilding their homes and communities. 
An often cited example is the nearby town of Cockatoo, which was rebuilt after Ash Wednesday 25 years ago and now thrives. After Black Saturday, the Prime Minister Kevin Rudd vowed that every community destroyed will be rebuilt brick for brick. But survivors are divided about whether they'll return. For example, a Murrindindi Shire councillor, Peter Beals, says King Lake will never be the same again. Well, a lot of people will not come back. They've already told me that. We've got a very young population and we've also got a very old population of people with tree changes and they didn't expect the trees to explode on them. They've said they're not coming back. A lot of the young people are so traumatised, they won't come back. But Martin Booth says he'll stick it out. People have lost their homes, I think, that I've spoken to. It's, it's a bit early for them. But certainly they're not saying, no, I'm just getting out of here and going. And certainly the people who, like myself, are fortunate enough you know, to come through it, I would be surprised to see them putting their house on the market and moving. I really would, because I think the only way they'd become safe from bushfires in, in something like Victoria is to probably to move right in the middle of Melbourne. And I don't think people, you're not going to do that. I'd rather risk a bushfire than have to put up in the middle of Melbourne every day for the rest of my days. When families do get down to rebuilding, they may find it's harder and more expensive. The Royal Commission is likely to recommend further strengthening of building codes for fire resistance. The Chief Executive of the Australasian Fire Authorities Council is Naomi Brown. Ms Brown told the ABC she has been pushing for higher safety requirements for some time, but met significant resistance. We believe in, in the way the, the standard has been put together, that safety has taken a lower priority to, I guess, some of the other interests and uh, cost being one of those. The community horror will have shifted the attitude of many. There's already a growing push for fully insulated fire bunkers to be made compulsory for homes in the most fire-prone regions. At several thousand dollars, the reinforced concrete and steel bunkers are below ground, either under or near the house, or for communal use in towns. The environmental historian Tom Griffiths says people in the Victorian ranges should be made to include a fire bunker in the ground near their house. I think we're going to have to have mandatory bunkers or fire refuges, and not just at the end of the street, because people will die getting to them. It needs to be on the property. Those people who want to return, and we want them to return, we want uh, people to uh, live safely in those areas, uh, well, they're going to need to uh, build bunkers. One thing we know for certain is any bunker built in these mountain communities will be used and it will save lives and it will probably be in the next 50 to 70 years. And so it's a worthy investment. But Naomi Brown says fire authorities are yet to be satisfied they are safe enough. Bunkers under houses can be risky. Uh, there have been examples of houses being burned and then collapsing on the bunker and people have been killed. Not everyone is convinced that the rush to fireproof houses and to investigate every aspect of the tragedy will prevent it happening again. The park ranger Ian Roach says the combined drought, heat and wind conditions present that Saturday were such that anything that could burn did. He says fire authorities have never possessed the means to deal with a fire of such size and ferocity and never will. The logger Michael McKinnell agrees. I don't think any agencies personally have any great questions to answer about it. There's nothing that mankind possesses that could have had any impact on Saturday. That was a, just a holocaust and that's the best way to describe it. The public wants to believe that lessons were learnt after both the 1939 and 1983 fires, and every lesson to be gleaned from this Black Saturday will be taken up too. 
but historians are already saying it's simply an inescapable fact of the Australian landscape that from time to time nature overcomes culture and a Holocaust fire will ravage communities again. That programme was written and presented by Ian Telfer with additional material from the ABC. The technical operator was Katrina Batten and the producer was Sue Ingram.